0: The Old Testament reading for today is 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11. The New Testament reading and the sermon text is Luke 1, 39 through 56. 1 Samuel 2, Luke 1, 39. The title of today's sermon is God has shown strength with his arm. As most of you know, it is my custom to read from the Old Testament and the New at the beginning of each sermon. I think this helps us to remember that both testaments are the Word of God and authoritative for the Christian. And it is also my custom to select a passage either from the Old Testament or New that corresponds somehow to the sermon text. Sometimes I make much of the connection between the passages in the sermon and sometimes I do not. Either way... This custom should help us to remember that the Old and New Testaments are very much interrelated. Many have noticed this throughout the history of the Church. I like the way that Augustine puts it. The New is in the Old concealed. The Old is in the New revealed. This morning I want you to see the obvious relationship between the song that the Virgin Mary sang after she was greeted by her relative Elizabeth and the prayer that a woman named Hannah said As she brought her weaned son Samuel to the temple to leave him with the priest Eli so that he might be devoted to the service of the Lord. We should remember that Hannah was barren. She was deeply distressed about this. And one day she wept bitterly at the temple and made a vow to the Lord saying... O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. The Lord answered her prayer. The barren one conceived and bore a son. After he was weaned, she brought him to the temple to leave him to the service of God. Here now, First Samuel 2, verses 1-11. through And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. What a marvelous prayer this was. I hope it is clear to you that it was very much about the faith and hope that Hannah had in the promised Messiah. Let us now go to our New Testament reading and our sermon text. It is Luke 1 39 through 56. There we read, "...in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb." He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we begin to consider our passage for today, I would like to make a few preliminary observations. One, do not forget the final piece of information that the, Ab- the angel Gabriel revealed to Mary as recorded in the previous passage. He said, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. That is Luke 1.36. It is not surprising, therefore, to read that in those days Mary arose and went with haste to visit her relative Elizabeth. Surely Mary wished to see for herself that the word of the angel was true. Surely she wished to be comforted and encouraged by Elizabeth. And perhaps she wished to have some privacy in the early months of her pregnancy as she continued to process all that was happening to her along with the life-changing implications. Two, Notice the emphasis on the activity of the Holy Spirit in those days. The angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his son John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And after Mary asked how these things would be, the angel answered, "'The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God.'" And here in our passage it is said that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, etc. Luke's gospel is all about Jesus the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one, that is to say one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the anointed one as we will see in our study It is no wonder then that the Holy Spirit was so very active in the process of bringing the Messiah into the world. It was the Father who sent the Son to be incarnate, and this He did by the working of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Trinity here, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work to accomplish our redemption. Three, notice the prominent role that women played early in Luke's Gospel. Both Mary and Elizabeth demonstrate great faith and courage. They also display great knowledge concerning the Scriptures and especially the promises of the Old Testament pertaining to the arrival of the Messiah, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. More women will be added to this list as we progress through Luke. Anna the prophetess will be introduced to us in Luke 2.36 Mary and Martha in Luke 10, and others who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for Jesus and His disciples out of their means. That is Luke 8, 2-3. Here we have an example of how Christ turns everything on its head compared to the way of the world. In the world in that day and in that culture, women perhaps were disregarded a bit. And it is true that Jesus' core disciples were all male. And it is true that He does command men to lead within the home and the church. But women are highlighted in Luke's Gospel as being particularly faithful. And we should not miss this theme. We see it in Luke. Have we not also seen it in our own congregation, brothers and sisters? Now, having made these introductory observations, let us carefully consider the sayings uttered by these two faithful women, Elizabeth and Mary, as they met with one another. First, let us consider the words of Elizabeth, as found in verses 41 through 45. In verse 41, we read, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know it is not unusual for babies to move around in the womb, but this movement of John was exceptional. It happened at the moment that Mary spoke, and it was very strong. Both the timing and the strength of the movement of the child caused Elizabeth to take notice. It was a sign to her that Mary was indeed the mother of her Lord. I think we are to remember the prophecy of Malachi two, which speaks of the coming Messiah, saying, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That is Malachi 4.2. Well, we are to see that John the Baptist, Baptist leapt with joy even in the womb of his mother. He was conceived for this purpose, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he wept, wept, leapt even in the womb of his mother When the text says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, it is not referring to the ordinary operations of the Spirit, such as the conviction of sin, effectual calling, regeneration, and sealing, but to the extraordinary operation of the Spirit. The Spirit of God filled Elizabeth and empowered her to declare this prophecy. Consider now verses 42-45. through And she exclaimed with a loud cry, having been filled with the Spirit and moved along by the Spirit, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I want you to notice two things about the words of elizabeth firstly notice the threefold repetition of the word blessed to be blessed is to have the favor of god bestowed upon you elizabeth being moved by the holy spirit declared mary to be blessed blessed are you among women she said and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment to what was spoken to her from the lord this Threefold repetition of the phrase, uh, blessing, uh, the the, the word blessed, confirms what was said in the previous sermon regarding uh, the innocence of, of, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. This confirms what was said in the previous sermon regarding the innocence of Mary's question, how will this be? She did not doubt, she wondered, she believed, and she is an example to us in this. And Elizabeth also declared Jesus to be blessed. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. She exclaimed. As you probably know, the Roman Catholics have elevated Mary to a position that she was never meant to occupy. They venerate her. They pray to her as if she was a mediator between God and men alongside Jesus. They claim that she was without sin. Some will even refer to her as a co redemptrix. All of these errors are to be avoided as unscriptural. But how then are we to regard Mary? How are we to regard Mary? Answer, we are to regard her as one who was blessed of God. The favor of God was bestowed upon her, not for any merit of her own, but by God's grace alone. Mary, note, was the recipient of grace. In no way is she the giver grace, Though I do not doubt that Mary was faithful, though I do not doubt that she was a devout young woman, she needed a Savior, just like you and me. She was uniquely blessed, however, to be the one who would bring Jesus Christ, the Savior, the only mediator between God and man, into the world. And so Elizabeth was right to call Mary and her child blessed. He was blessed in her womb and she Was blessed. Blessed, 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 Elizabeth says, and rightly so, and that is how we are to regard Mary, the mother of our Lord. Secondly, notice that Elizabeth referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord. The Greek word for Lord can be used in a generic sense to refer to any master or superior, but used in this context, it is clearly a reference to the promised Messiah. Psalm 110 is very important. King David spoke concerning the Messiah when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who is the first Lord mentioned here in Psalm 110? It is Yahweh. And who is the second Lord mentioned? It is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Again, Psalm 110 says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Elizabeth referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord, she meant the mother of the Messiah, the promised son of David. Furthermore, it should be noticed that the title Lord has already been used ten times in Luke's Gospel. In each instance, it refers to the God of Israel. So then, when Elizabeth referred to Mary as the mother of my Lord, she meant the mother of, of God. She was the very mother of God. It is right for her, us to refer to her as this. She was the mother of the Messiah, and indeed we know that the Messiah is God with us, God incarnate. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God come in the flesh. Mary was blessed to be the mother of the Messiah. Indeed, She was the very mother of God come in the flesh. Let us go now to the words of Mary, as found in verses 46 through 55. I'll read them again in their entirety, and then we will consider them in some detail. Mary said, "'My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me.'" Truly, Mary's Song of Praise needs to be considered alongside Hannah's Song of Praise, which we read just a moment ago. When you set 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11, alongside Luke 1, 46 through 55, the similarities are hard to miss. The significance of the similarities is this Hannah and her miraculously conceived son, Samuel, were a type or foreshadowing of Mary. And her son Jesus. And the song that Hannah sang, though it had a more immediate fulfillment in King David, was ultimately about Jesus the Messiah, David's son and David's Lord. It is marvelous to consider that when Hannah exclaimed, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, she was really exalting and rejoicing in. Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed one, and in the salvation He would earn. When Hannah rejoiced in the humiliation of the proud and the exaltation of the humble, she anticipated the judgment and salvation of Christ. When she said, the Lord kills and brings to life, He brings down to Sheol and raises up, she, perhaps unknowingly, anticipated the death, burial, descent, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and are new and eternal life in Him. And when she uttered the words, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. She did not only speak of King David who was to come, but of King Jesus, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. This prophecy that we see that came from the mouth of Hannah in the times of the Old Testament is truly marvelous to consider. She was looking forward to the Lord, Lord's anointed one, to the Messiah. She set her hope on Him. She knew that He would come to win a great victory, to bring down the exalted ones and to, and to rise up those of humble estate. Though it is true that there are many obvious similarities between the songs of Hannah and Mary, it is also true that Mary's song, as it is recorded here in Luke one forty-six through 55 is filled with quotations and allusions to many other Old Testament passages and themes. We do not have the time to trace them all down. In fact, as I wrote this sermon in my study, I began to feel a little bit overwhelmed by all of the quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. Every line has reference to the Old Testament and we could spend a great deal of time Exploring those. When all is considered, though, it becomes clear that Mary had God's Word stored up in her heart. Mary had God's Word stored up in her heart. The same can be said of Elizabeth, by the way. These women were clearly very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew the promises of God concerning the coming Messiah, and the Holy Scripture so filled their minds and hearts that when they sang, They sang with the very words and phrases of Holy Scripture. Brothers and sisters, does God's Word so fill your mind and heart that when you pray, you cannot help but pray with the words and phrases of Holy Scripture? I pressed you with this same question at the end of the last sermon and I will likely press you with it again. We really need to grow in our familiarity with the Bible and I would say especially the Old Testament Scriptures. We need to grow in our familiarity with them so that we can see Christ revealed in them, so that we might see that Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies and promises. Let us now move rather quickly through Mary's expression of praise, line by line. Verse 46, And Mary said, My soul... "...magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant." Notice that Mary is humble before the Lord. She regards herself as the Lord's servant. Her response to the good news regarding the arrival of the Messiah was to rejoice in God and to magnify Him, this is to say, to praise. And she is an example to us in all of these things. We too ought to walk humbly before God. We too ought to regard ourselves as servants of the Lord. We too ought to rejoice in the Lord and magnify Him in the soul. Notice also that Mary refers to God as God my Savior. This recalls the opening of Hannah's song. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, she says. It also recalls the language of Habakkuk 3.18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, says Habakkuk 3.18. When Mary refers to God as God my Savior, she communicates both her trust in the promises of God concerning the salvation He would work through the coming Messiah and her belief that the salvation was at hand. The Messiah was in her womb. Look now at the second half of verse 48. There, Mary says, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So, Mary agreed with Elizabeth's assessment that we, she was blessed by the Lord. And she was certainly correct to say, From now on all generations will call me blessed, as has been said. Some elevate Mary to a position she was never intended to have. Nevertheless, those of the people of God should agree that she was indeed blessed by God to be the woman who would give birth to the Messiah. Mary was blessed indeed. Generation after generation has acknowledged this fact. But notice how Mary gives glory to God and does not seek glory for herself. She would be called blessed from generation to generation. Why? Well, she tells us, For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. God alone is holy. Mary was not holy by nature. Though she was undoubtedly faithful and devout, she was a sinner in need of a Savior. Her Son was her Savior. She trusted in Him before He was miraculously conceived by believing in the promises of God concerning Him, and she trusted in Him for the miraculous, from the miraculous conception onward, believing Him to be the fulfillment of all of the promises of God previously made. Yes, very great things were done in and through Mary, but it was the Lord who did these things for her by His might and by His mercy and grace. In fact, this is what Mary confesses, not only for herself, but for others too, in the words of verse 50. And his mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is kind. He does not give us what our sins deserve, namely, eternal judgment. He gives us good things instead, namely, eternal life. And His mercy and grace is extended to us through Jesus the Messiah. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one who reconciles us to the Father and blesses us with life eternal, given the salvation He has earned through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. God is merciful, gracious, and kind. But notice this, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary feared the Lord. She honored Him as God and trusted In his promises. God's mercy was for her, therefore. Indeed, it is for all who fear the Lord and trust in the Lord's Messiah. In verses 51 through 44, Mary speaks of the salvation that God had and was about to accomplish. The terminology she uses is really important, and I I think it is fascinating. We should remember that Mary, at this point in her life, Did not know how this Messiah son of hers would accomplish her salvation and ours. She did not know how it would be done. The Old Testament scriptures reveal that the Messiah would accomplish our salvation, and there are certainly hints about how he would do it. We can see these things clearly now as we look back upon the Old Testament in light of the accomplishment of our salvation as recorded in the New Testament. But the details were still a mystery to Mary at this point in her life. By faith, she trusted in the promised Messiah. By faith, she knew that the Messiah was in her womb. By faith, she knew that God was about to work this salvation. But she did not know how exactly it would be accomplished at this point in her life. It is not surprising then that she spoke of the accomplishment of our salvation In Old Testament terms, and especially with language that is reminiscent of the exodus of Israel from Egypt. The point is this, Mary did not know how exactly the Messiah would work salvation for her and for all who feared the Lord with her, but she knew it would be like the exodus. She understood that the first exodus anticipated a second and greater exodus. She understood that the Messiah would overthrow the powers of darkness that He would set His people free, leading them onwards towards the eternal promised land in fulfillment of the promises made to the Father. She knew all of this, and so when she spoke of the salvation of God that was about to be accomplished through her Messiah Son, she spoke using the terminology of the Old Testament and especially the Exodus. Let us look at this now, beginning in verse 51. There Mary says, He has shown strength, with his arm. And those familiar with the Old Testament will know that this is how the Scriptures speak of the Exodus of Israel from Egypt. Yahweh delivered Israel by the strength of his arm. Take for example Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy seven eighteen. He spoke to the people of Israel, looking back upon the Exodus of Israel from Egypt in this way. You shall not be afraid of them, speaking of their "'Present enemies, you shall not be afraid of them, "'but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh "'and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, "'the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm "'by which the Lord your God brought you out. "'So will the Lord your God do to all the people of whom you are afraid. "'Israel was not to fear.' They were to remember the salvation of the Lord and the strength of His arm. They were to trust that the Lord would deliver them from all of their enemies from that day on, onward. When Mary says, He has shown strength with His arm, she remembers the Exodus, and she expresses the belief that the Messiah who was in her womb was the second and greater Moses, the one who had come to accomplish a second and greater Exodus. The first, which was worked through Moses, was earthly, temporary, and a type of the one to come. The second, which was worked by Christ, was heavenly, eternal, and the antitype or fulfillment of the first. And I am saying to you that Mary understood this. She understood that the Messiah had come to accomplish this greater work of salvation. She did not know how exactly He would do it. The details were still a mystery to her at this point in her life. And she so and so she spoke using the terminology that was available to her. It was the terminology of the Old Testament Scriptures, terminology reminiscent of the first Exodus. Look now at the second half of verse 51. There Mary says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. I want you to think of the way that God. Confounded Pharaoh and the wise men of Egypt as he delivered his people from bondage to Pharaoh and to Egypt. He confounded Pharaoh. He confounded the wise man. Think of the way that he humbled Nebuchadnezzar also to show his sovereignty over him. Christ came to do the same. Though the, power, though the powerful in his day would have him crucified... We know that He would rise on the third day and ascend to the highest heavens with all authority in heaven and on earth being given to Him. Through the foolishness of the cross, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In verse 52, Mary says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So yes, let's think of Pharaoh again and the way that the Lord humbled Pharaoh And in the humiliation of Pharaoh, he led his humble people out into the wilderness and towards the promised land. Let us think of the way that he humbled Nebuchadnezzar also. And the way in which the Lord brought these powerful figures down from their earthly earthly thrones. Let us think of them. But as you think of these earthly kings that were humbled by the Lord in Old Testament times, do not forget about the spiritual powers of darkness that were behind them. Do not not forget about the spiritual powers of darkness that were behind these powerful earthly kings that oppressed the people of God. If you read the story of the Bible carefully, you will see that throughout the course of human history, there is a spiritual and heavenly reality that runs concurrent with the physical and earthly realities that we experience. This dynamic is introduced to us, even in Genesis 2 and 3. There we see that the God of heaven entered into a covenant with the man and woman on earth whom He had created. And there we see that the same man and woman were tempted by a heavenly and spiritual being, a fallen angel, Satan. According to the Bible, after the fall of man into sin, the whole course of human history is marked by conflict between those who belong to the evil one by nature and those who belong to God by faith. The evil one is continuously striking at God's people, seeking to devour them, but God promised to preserve his people, and he promised to crush the head of this serpent who strikes at them. This he would do through a savior, a redeemer. As you know, it was the heel of Jesus, the Messiah, that dropped on the head of the serpent, and this was accomplished ironically at the foot of the cross upon which he was hanged. I mention this spiritual battle to you now in brief because Mary's words, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, here in Luke 152, have an ultimate reference not to Pharaoh, not to Nebuchadnezzar, not to Caesar, not to Nero, or to any other earthly being with political power who persecutes God's people but to Satan himself. To state it differently, when Christ accomplished our salvation, he did not merely cast Pharaoh or Caesar or Nero from their thrones. No, he cast Satan from his. This is the work that Christ accomplished. Yes, Mary speaks of this salvation that this Messiah, son of hers, would, would accomplish in the terms of, of the Old Testament and in the terms especially Of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Yes, she speaks in those terms because she did not know how exactly the Messiah would accomplish her salvation. But as she uses this Old Testament language, we must understand that these things, the humiliation of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and others, were a type of the greater work to come, namely the dethronement of Satan himself, that spiritual being, that rebel, that traitor who stood behind these powers of darkness who persecuted the people of God from generation to generation. If you're reading the Bible carefully, if you're reading the story of Scripture carefully, you see that this is what is going on. Behind the earthly and physical realities that we experience, there is a heavenly and spiritual reality. There is a spiritual battle that rages. If I were to prove the point to you and had only a minute to do it, I would say, do not forget the way in which the Lord delivered His people from Egyptian bondage. What did He do except pour out judgments upon the Egyptians, but in such a way so as to demonstrate His power and authority over the so-called gods of Egypt. Do you remember that from our study of the book of Exodus? How each one of those plagues, the ten of them that were poured out upon the Egyptians were directed at the so-called gods of Egypt, and those gods were demons? And so God was demonstrating His authority not only over Pharaoh and over His wise men, the sorcerers, but His sovereignty even over the demonic, you see. And that was a type of the greater work that Christ would accomplish. When Christ came, He came to bring down the mighty from their thrones... And no, this is not just about Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar or Nero or any other earthly political power that persecutes. This is about Satan himself and the victory that Christ would win over him. Brothers and sisters, please understand this. When Adam bowed the knee to Satan in the garden and defected from the kingdom of God that was offered to him, Satan was given a kind of authority on earth and over the nations. Did you hear me? Do not miss this crucial fact. When Adam bowed the knee to Satan in the garden and defected from the kingdom of God that was offered to him, Satan was given a kind of authority on earth and over the nations. Adam was called to rule on earth as God's vice regent, but when he obeyed the voice of the serpent, he brought himself and all whom he represented under subjection to the evil one to whom he had bowed the knee. This is why Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Those are the words of Christ in John 12:31. He referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Paul refers to him as the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. This does not mean that Satan is equal to or above God. It does not mean that he has in any way the divine nature, but it does mean that after the fall of man into sin and until the resurrection of Christ from the grave, Satan was given a kind of authority over the nations. Satan kept the nations in darkness. He led them away into idolatry. These nations were alienated from God and from His salvation, the one exception being Israel. You may see Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1 for scriptures about this. Israel was the first nation on earth whom God reconciled to Himself in an earthly sense. To them He gave His covenant promises and through Him He would bring salvation to all nations for from them the Messiah would be born. And what would the Messiah do? What would the Messiah do to make it possible for the salvation of God and the kingdom of God to spread to all nations? One thing is this. He would bring down the mighty from their thrones. Above all, he would cast Satan down from his. That usurper, Satan, was in a sense sitting on the throne that was offered to Adam in the garden. Christ Jesus came to cast him off of it. And having cast him off of this throne, through his obedient life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, he ascended to his throne in heaven and sat down with all authority in heaven and on earth being given to him. Indeed, all who are united to him by humble faith are exalted with him. I introduce this theme to you now using Mary's words in Luke one fifty two, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Because this theme has a very prominent place in Luke's Gospel. Luke presents Jesus to us as the one who came to save us from all our enemies. And as we progress through this Gospel, we will see that this enemy is none other than Satan himself. Christ was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but overcame him, Luke 4. He told his disciples that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. He and his disciples cast out demons, why? To demonstrate that the kingdom of God was present with power and that Satan's kingdom was, at that time, being overthrown. And of course, this culminates with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh and the spreading of the kingdom of God to all nations through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of the kingdom. Given what has just been said, it should be clear that when Mary says in verses 52-54, through He has exalted those of humble estate, He has filled the hungry with good things, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. This is not about being exalted on earth, perhaps in a socio-economic sense. Nor is it about being filled with good things such as bread and meat, Nor is it about being helped through earthly difficulties ultimately. No, Christ came to win victory in the spiritual realm and He has come to exalt His people to glory, to fill them with eternal joy and satisfaction and to bring them through even the trial of death and judgment itself. That is what is meant by He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, these verses, if ripped from their context, their context in Luke and their context in the rest of the Bible, could be twisted to mean that Jesus came to give you a better life now. But taken in context, they certainly mean that Christ has come to free His people from eternal death and to give them abundant and eternal life now and forever through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Also the words, and the rich He has sent away empty, have have more to do with eternal emptiness and destruction than with emptiness here on this earth only. Verses 54 and 55 make all of this clear. For there Mary puts everything in context when He says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. The point is this, if we wish to know what Christ has come to save us from and what He has come to save us to, then we must remember the promises that He made to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And what were those promises about? Again, I use the word ultimately. What were those promises about ultimately? Answer, eternal life in the blessed presence of God in the new heavens and new earth. This is what Jesus Christ has earned through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, not only for Himself, but for all who turn from their sins and trust in Him. Christ has, to use the language of Paul, delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I have one question to ask by way of conclusion. Do you... Like Mary, have God as your Savior. Do you, like Mary, have God as your Savior? He is your Creator. God is your Creator. And this is true whether or not you acknowledge Him as such. This is a reality that cannot be altered by you. And if He is your Creator only, you must know that the Bible teaches He is also your Judge. All who are not in Christ will stand before Him one day to be judged. And none will stand. All will come under His eternal wrath, for all are guilty of sin. The only hope is to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that God has provided. Indeed, it is true. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I do exhort you, turn from your sins and to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Say, Jesus is Lord in the waters of baptism, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And if God is your Savior, if indeed you have faith in Jesus Christ, then I say to you, brothers and sisters, abide in Him. Remain in Him. Grow more and more in your understanding of all that Christ has done for you. He did not come to merely forgive your sins in an individual way. He has even come to defeat the evil one and to free us from bondage to darkness, to bring us safely home together as His people into the new heavens and new earth. These things He promised to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These things He has accomplished through Christ the Lord. It's in His name that we trust. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures which are so very rich. We thank you for the words of Mary and Elizabeth here, these faithful women who had the holy scriptures cherished within their hearts and understood within their minds. We thank you for these words that they spoke as they rejoiced over the coming salvation of Jesus Christ. I pray, O God, that you would strengthen our faith, For those who know Jesus as Lord, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, O God. That you would help us to comprehend the Scriptures more and more and to see our salvation there. Help us to grow in our comprehension of these things and I pray that you would captivate our hearts, O Lord. That we would love you all the more. That we would be all the more devout in our worship of you, O God. That we would be all the more faithful in our service of you. Humble us, O Lord. Humble us so that we would Believe Your Word and live in obedience to it. For those who do not know Christ, I pray, O God, that You would have mercy, that You would draw them to faith in Jesus, the Redeemer, the only mediator between God and man. We thank You for Your mercy, O God. Help us to run to You through faith in Him and to cling to Him always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.